Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, kiddos, you guys are dismissed to Children's Church. Thank you uh, for our kids volunteers that do such a great job. Um, I don't know if you guys realize this, but uh, right the, the pre or birth through like pre-K, um, they're right now in the back getting taught, prayed over. Um, the K through five can come hang out in here and then they go hear a lesson and get prayed over. Um, and then after every gathering, our youth group meets together and kind of goes through the sermon, um, prays together. So just grateful for all the, the children's volunteers and youth volunteers that are helping to raise up that next generation. Now, my name is Gabe Dodd. I'm one of the elders here, one of the four elders in the primary teaching elder. Um, and this is your first time. We're so grateful that you're here. Um, we're just excited to see what God is going to do this morning. And we had our elders retreat uh, the last couple days, Friday and Saturday. Um, and one of the things that just kept coming up was how grateful we are for you guys as a church, uh, for our leaders, for our volunteers, for all those involved with missional communities. Um, we're just grateful that God gives us the privilege to, to lead this thing. And um, so thank you. Thank you for being you. Thank you for being awesome. So uh, if you have your Bibles, flip with me to Ezra. Ezra chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, it's kind of an obscure book, I get it. So uh, if you need to flip to the table of contents or something, there's no shame with that. Please do it. If you don't own a Bible, there should be one around you somewhere on the ground. Um, grab that one. If you don't own it, please take it with you. Um, that's our gift. If you want a better Bible, let us know. We will gladly purchase you one. Uh, we just want you to have a copy of God's Word for yourself um, so that you can see all that God is teaching us and, um, and just learn from it. So uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, let me just kind of give a quick snapshot of those two books uh, because we're, we're doing those as a series together, primarily because uh, up until the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the New Testament or Old Testament, uh, those books were always one. So the authors never separated those two, kind of like First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel. They always kept those books together. Um, so for the best study of Ezra and Nehemiah, it's best that we read these two books as one, as one narrative. Now, uh, who is a history nerd here? No shame. Who just loves history? All right. I'm going to nerd out on some history, okay? If you were here last week, I'm going to recap a little bit of what I, what I mentioned, but um, this is one of those books that history matters. Uh, when I started studying about Ezra and Nehemiah, I was joking around with a pastor, a friend of mine. I was like, man, that, like, there's just so much history. Um, and he's a doctor and super smart. And he looked at me and said, Gabe, that's all history, yeah, you want to come preach for the branch? Because I didn't know that till now. So um, Ezra and Nehemiah, just primarily, it's a historical account uh, that covers about 100 years from 538 B.C. to about 430 B.C. Now, if, if you've been around for a little bit, you've probably heard me say or one of the people teaching say um, that the last book of the Old Testament before Jesus came, before Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those books started, was a gap of about 400 years, right? So in that gap of 400 years, Nothing happened. We have no historical writings of that from the scripture. Obviously, we have historical writings, but from the scripture. So if we kind of do the math real quick, if Ezra and Nehemiah ends about 530 BC, then we would see that, that, that this is the last major historical event that happens in the Old Testament before Christ comes. Um, so there's some massive information here that we need to see before basically the Bible goes cold for about 400 years. Um, so if you were here last semester, if you've heard a little bit of our podcast, we've been teaching through the book of Joshua last semester. Um, Matthew, Mark, nope, what am I doing? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. So uh, we have the whole narrative, Jesus created, or God created everything. It was good, sin entered the world. Um, and all through that, God is reconciling, redeeming the world to himself. And so with Joshua, we see that it picks up uh, with the fact that 
Moses, because of the sin of Israel, would not enter into the promised land. That was going to be Joshua's job. So Joshua picked up, um, led the whole nation of Israel into the promised land. They had all these different battles and wars going on, uh, taking over the land of Canaan. And that book ends with the fact that Joshua dies and he's pleading with the nation of Israel, do not go back to your former ways, serve the Lord, obey the Lord, keep following the Lord. But then what happens? Joshua dies. They don't do what Joshua commanded. They don't do what God commanded. And so sin starts to enter back in. They start to get persuaded by other religions, by other leaders. And so they start to go adrift. So the book of Judges is a really um, important book. And it's kind of in between the first five books, um, Joshua, and then the next. Because um, in Judges, God is trying to rule the people by himself. He's trying to have this relationship with the people of God, saying, look, I'm, I'm going to be in heaven, but I'm going to lead you. A theocracy is what that's called. But it didn't, it didn't go well. The people were not obeying God. So he put judges in place, um, not like speed tick judges, uh, but like judges, like military rulers in place to rule them. Until we start rolling into First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, then we see the kings that God puts in place happened. So the kings come in, we have Saul that leads for a little bit. Uh, because of his sin, he falls, David rules, and David is considered a man after God's own heart. Uh, but really, if you, if you read the translation, it's not that, that Daniel pursued God's heart with everything that he had, but that God had Daniel a special place in God's heart for Daniel. And so we see David, excuse me, but David, we see this progression go on, and for about 500 years after the rule of David, the kings were ruling Israel decently well. But all the while, there's a progressive slip. There was sin that was entering into. So you have David that comes on the scene about 1,000 B.C. that's ruling. And by 721, the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by Assyria. So the northern kingdom comes in, gets destroyed. Um, not too much long after, about 605 B.C., the southern part of Israel, Judah, with Jerusalem as their capital city, um, gets infiltrated by Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, and they fall. So by 589-ish, uh, Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. And all the Jews, all the Israelites that are living in the southern part in Judah have been now exiled out of Jerusalem, out of Judah. They're gone. Now, this is where things kind of get a little crazy. Are we tracking so far? I told you I was going to nerd out on history. I see some drool happening already. Wake up. We're almost to Ezra. So the, the crazy thing as we continue on, though, so you have King Nebuchadnezzar, you have Babylon that's leading. They led the charge. They destroyed all of Judah. Uh, but that didn't last very long. There was just some things happening inside Babylon. They imploded. So Persia um, didn't even have to defeat Babylon. They just walked in and said, give us your country. And they said, okay. They gave it right over to uh, Persia. And so Cyrus the Great comes in and starts leading Persia. All the things, all the exiles, all the people, he just inherited all of it. Persia did. And so they had this weird kind of belief in Persia. And, and has anyone ever seen 300? Okay, so this is very through uh, 300. You have, we'll talk about in a couple weeks, Xerxes, uh, which makes this massive play within 300. Um, but we have this scene happening where um, Cyrus the Great comes into rule, and because of the belief of Persia, they said, look, we believe in all gods. We want all gods to be happy with us. We want all gods to bless us. So we're going to kind of worship a bunch of different gods just to appease all of them and keep them happy with us. And so when they find out that there's exiles there from Jerusalem, they're Israelites, um, Cyrus the Great says, hey, here's what we're going to do. Go back. 
you can go back to Judah, rebuild your temple, but all that you have, we're going to give you all the tools that is needed to send you back and rebuild your temple uh, because we want your God to like us, basically. We want your God to be pleased with us. Um, so if you flip just to Ezra 1.1, we kind of see this taking place. And Ezra 1.1 says it this way. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jerem might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing. And his proclamation is this, Israel, go home. Judah, go home, go back to Jerusalem, rebuild your temple. Um, All the spoils of war that King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon had taken from Israel, they gave it back. He commanded all the people in Persia to give them gold, silver, cattle, everything they need. He said, go take it. Go rebuild. You're fine. You're still going to be under Persian rule, but you can go rebuild. I want your God to like us, so go. So at first hand, what we talked about a lot last week uh, was that Cyrus just seems like a dude, right? Like, man, that's really generous of you, man. Thank you for doing that. But in one one, it's very clear this was not Cyrus. This was the stirring of the Lord, that the, that the words of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So we see, again, dates matter here, but pretty, pretty importantly. So 586, Jerusalem completely destroyed. But 539 is when all this is starting to take place, that Persia f- takes over Babylon, and they send them back about 538. So 538, this is when this is happening. They're sending them back to rebuild Jerusalem. Well, in about 620, so going back almost uh, 70 years, there's Daniel who is, uh, excuse me, there's Jeremiah that's writing, that's professing, that is making these declarative statements to Israel. Israel's going to fall if you don't repent. Israel's going to fall. It's going to be destroyed if you don't repent, if you don't turn from your sin. And then 605, we see that happen. 586, everything's destroyed. So one of the first exiles that gets taken away from uh, Judah, taken away from Jerusalem, is this guy named Daniel. And you're probably familiar, Daniel in the lion's den. He's trying to be... um, persuaded to deny God, deny that God exists, and he just won't do it. He won't have it. So he's in captivity inside Babylon when, all, when Persia takes over, and he's reading the words of Jeremiah. He's doing the math because Jeremiah clearly says 70 years, after 70 years of being exiled, the people are going to be able to go home. And Daniel realizes it's been 70 years. Like this is about to go down. We're about to get back to our promised land because it's been 70 years. So we see here that this is not Cyrus's doing. That because of the sin of Israel, they've been exiled out of their land, but God is going to restore them, but God is going to bring them back. He's going to allow them to rebuild the temple, bring them back in right standing with God. And it's not Cyrus. It's not the words of Jeremiah. It's not the words of Daniel. It's the words of God. Now, this should be good news for us as we start getting into Ezra and Nehemiah, because here's the overarching story of Ezra and Nehemiah, that sin cannot keep you away from God. That if you're a people of God, if you're a son and daughter of God, he's going to restore you. He's going to bring you back. As many times as you fall, God can restore you. God can bring you back if you repent and you believe. See, we're not universalists. We don't think that, that no matter what you do, there's no real consequences to your sin. Just do what you want, and then God's going to eventually save you in the end. That's not what we believe, because Jesus died a murderous devil's death on the cross. I mean, he took all the sin upon his shoulders and was murdered on the cross. Now, if we were universalists, if we just said, yeah, man, like God's just going to love everyone and bring everyone back to him at the end, then why would Jesus have to be murdered in that way? 
But because of the atonement, because of the sin that was put on Jesus Christ for us, that there's no sin that, that can destroy us if we were sons and daughters of God. And we see this through the covenantal language that's all throughout the Old Testament, that I will be your God, Israel, and you will be my people. And no matter how far you run, I can restore you, I will restore you, I will rescue you, I will bring you back to the fold. So we see this covenantal promise all through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, but we cannot get away from, we see the consequences of sin. That sin and disobedience must be punished. So this is the whole story beginning of Ezra being in exile, and now he's coming back to lead a people. Nehemiah being in exile, now he's coming back to lead a people. Zerubbabel being in exile, now he's coming back to lead a people. So now with all that being said, Let's pick it up in three chapter, or chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. I made it all through my introduction without saying anything inappropriate. That's good, right? I'm proud of that. 3, chapter 1, everybody there? All right, let's go. When the seventh month came, and came the children of Israel were in towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, Zerubbabel and Sheatiel, and his kingsmen, and they built the altar of God of Israel to, burnt offerings, to put burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. Now, if you're paying attention, listen to that line one more time. Because the fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Verse 4. And they kept the feast of booths at its written and offered daily burnt offerings by numbers according to the rule, as each day required. And after the regular burnt offerings, the offerings of the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day to the seventh month, first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Before the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and to the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon from the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had received from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, a lot there that we could dive into, but here's, here's the question that we need to answer this morning, right? So they had been exiled into Babylon and then into Persian captivity. Now they're coming back, and here's the question. Did they learn what God was trying to teach them? I mean, I don't know about you guys, if you grew up in a house that like did timeouts or like if you just got whooped right there on the spot. But basically the overarching question is, if God just put them in a 70 year timeout for their sins and disobedience, now they're coming back out of timeout, they're coming out of captivity. Did they learn the lessons that God was trying to teach them? Did they learn the lessons that God was trying to show them that sin has consequences, that you cannot worship any other God? The first commandment of the Ten Commandments, you can have no other God before me. Did they learn their lesson? Did they learn what God asked them to do? So that's kind of the question that we're going to be answering as we're going through this. And so we see, I mean, right out the gate, they get back to Jerusalem and they jump right back into the law of Leviticus. So Leviticus 23 uh, in chapter 16, you don't have to flip there, um, but outlines all the traditions, all the rules, all the celebrations that the nation of Israel had to celebrate. 
The first day was a solemn rest. The tenth day was the day of the atonement. The fifteenth day began the festival of booths, all within the seventh month, which was the holy month of Israel. So we see that the, even though Israel had just gotten back, they're trying to restore everything, um, they just got back and they went straight after it, man. They jumped right back into the traditions, into the law that God had asked them to do. So at first glance, you're like, okay, like maybe you did learn your lesson. Because you've got to realize what they're walking back into, a land that has been desolate for 50 to 70 years. A land that has now been inhabited by these squatters by people that are just coming in to steal, take over, clocker this land as their own. So we see here that they gathered all one man to Jerusalem. So the whole nation of Judah came all together to Jerusalem. So that means everything that the king of Persia had given them, they just settled, they'd come back into their land, kicked people out of their house. They just settled back into their house and now they have to disappear. And, and here's the reality. They can't just call the police and say, hey, guys, I'm going on vacation for a week. Uh, can you just watch my property for me? I mean, they can't tell their neighbor, hey, like, I'm going to this luxurious spa in Jerusalem. Can you make sure no one messes with my house? No, because all of Israel gathered in Jerusalem, Scripture would say, as one man. They all showed up. And they, Scripture says, and they were all fearful of what was going to happen. Are they going to go back home and all their possessions stolen? all their cattle gone, their houses taken back over, their houses destroyed because the people that kicked out of their house got angry, came back and destroyed it while they were in Jerusalem. So we see this question asking, did the people of God, did the nation of Israel learn their lesson while they're in exile? And as soon as they get back to the land, they value the fear of God over the fear of man. The people might take my things, but I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to worship God. And I'm going to atone for my sin through the sacrifices. I'm going to celebrate in the festival of the booths. I'm in. No matter what happens to my property, I'm in. So if you're keeping count, they come back out of exile. They come out of timeout. First obedience check, yes. So far, Israel's doing pretty well. That's impressive to see. But let's keep reading. Let's see if this obedience keeps happening. Verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. Now in the second year after coming out of the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel and the son of Sheatiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak made a beginning together with the rest of their kingdom, the priests and the Levites, all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, the sons and brothers. So we see here, Jerusalem is back, or the nation of Israel is back. They're coming back into Jerusalem to get settled. And now the work, the original work of why they came back was to rebuild the temple to God. The, the work has now begun. Verse 10 and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the son of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the direction of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And here's what they're singing. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundations of the house of the Lord was laid. So we're trying to figure out, are they being obedient? Are they learning? 
So the temple work begins, and what breaks out in the temple work? It's worship. It's praising. They're singing. And in there, you might have noticed someone that Asaph, if you go read through the Psalms, the sons of Asaph and Asaph wrote 12 of the songs to God. So they're singing, they're praising, they're rejoicing while all the work of the temple is happening. And they're not praising the builders for doing a really good job. They're not praising the Levites for, man, you're killing the supervision job, man. You've got this. Keep going. No, they're praising God because they're rejoicing because God is here. Because God, we were not a people. We had rebelled. We had been in exile. And now God is allowing us to work for him. Let's praise him. Let's rejoice. Let's worship. There's this pastor in Kentucky named James Hamilton Jr. that puts it this way. Our lives are about worship. And we worship by obeying. The safest place to be obediently is to be obediently worshiping God. Let me read it one more time. Our lives are about worship, and we worship by obeying. The safest place to be is obediently worshiping God. So we see here clearly that if our lives are about worship and worship is obeying, that they were obeying all God had commanded them to, and because of the obedience, worship was just spontaneously happening. So, is Israel seemingly learning their lesson? Yes. Israel is rocking it. Verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men, that's not, that's not my word, that's Scripture's word, don't get offended, old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundations of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. Verse 13. so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. If we, if we were to translate this today into our modage language, we'd say, thanks boomers for ruining this, right? So what, what's happening here? Why do we have this younger generation worshiping, singing loud, praising God, and then having this older generation weeping loudly? so that people could not distinguish what's happening. This older generation had seen the original temple. The older generation knew how grand it was. They knew how special it was. If they hadn't seen it, they had heard the stories, they understood the stories of, of God's anointing presence coming to the temple. But what we also don't see is the Ark of the Covenant, right? So that's symbolism that, that the Ark was probably destroyed somewhere in the destruction of Jerusalem. So this older generation is watching this temple take place and they're weeping and they're mourning because it's not what it used to be. And you could hear it in their voices, in their tears. They're going, man, like, this is okay, but it's not what it was. And so you have this dichotomy, these people, of the same people, the people of Israel, now kind of getting discontent with one another. This divisiveness could have destroyed Israel right on the spot. This might have been the greatest test that Israel has faced since they came out of exile. That it wasn't the people from the outside that were trying to infiltrate. It was people from the inside. And C.S. Lewis writes about this, and we have a lot of authors that write about this. The greatest trick of the devil is to not to get us to fall from the outside. It's to get us to fight from the inside. That if he can just divide us from the inside, then, then he doesn't have to do anything else. If there's fighting, if there's quarrelsome, if there's hatred among us as a church or among Christians as the Big C Church, then why in the world would anyone want to be a part of it? And we start to see this, right? I mean, gosh, hypocrisy is the number one reason that people do not want to get, into, get involved with religion or Christianity or faith. 
that why do I want to go into a place where people are going to gossip about me, people are going to slander about me, people are going to talk bad about me, that they don't actually love one another, they're just super fake. It's just, it's just nothing but hypocrisy. So we see the divisiveness, even in our own culture, keeping people away from the faith. And if, if I could just be honest, they're right. They are 100% right. There are communities that are not based around Jesus that seemingly love one another better than the church does. And that is awful. And that is a sin. And God despises that. Because if we are truly the sons and daughters of God, if we are truly brothers and sisters because of the faith that we have in Christ Jesus, no one should love one another better than we do. No one should serve one another better than we do. No one should respect one another, another better than we do. Nobody should. That our greatest apologetic weapon that we should have is the way we love and serve and respect one another. But would that, would that be true for the church today? I mean, could anyone say, yeah, like that, that's a good representation of the church? No, because we fight about stupid things. Can I just be frank? We fight about the most ridiculous things. And here, I, I just want to be very clear because it's easy for me at this point and probably for a lot of us to go, oh yeah, because they, like, they, people would fight about the steeple, people would fight about the color of the carpet, people would fight about pews and all that. Can you believe all that kind of stuff? But guys, I hear quarrelsome in us all the time. And it's not carpet. And it's not steeples. And it's not this or that, or my, my grandfather donated the wing of this side of the church. We can't mess that. It's not that. It's pride. It's arrogance. I know my Bible better than you do, so sit down and shut up. And in a lot of those conversations, I just want to walk in and say, a year ago you raised your hand to go to the bathroom in high school, and now you're an expert in theology. Stop. Stop. Stop creating this quarrelsome within the church. Stop fighting one another. Stop, you're not Martin Luther. The Reformation is not gonna start in you, brothers and sisters. I love you enough to say, stop trying to wear this cape and get on your knees, grab the basin, and wash the feet of those around you. Serve those around you. Love those around you. And if you have to say hard things, maybe you should check with yourself first. Because scripture would be pretty clear that maybe you should remove the plank out of your own eye before you ever once critique the sawdust in someone else's. Church, we're so tempted to just fight among ourselves because it makes us feel good about ourselves, right? Like I'm doing what's holy, I'm doing what's righteous, I'm fighting God's battle. No, you're shooting at your own army. That's never beneficial. And so we see this scene starting to take place within the nation of Israel, that the older and the younger could fight, could quarrel, could hate one another, and the nation of Israel would be destroyed right in front of them. Temple work would cease, everything would fall apart because the older and the younger start to fight. But we don't see that. We don't see that. Scripture doesn't give us a clear picture, but the, the temple work continues. The rebuilding continues. So somehow they were able to get over this. And I would argue, I would contend, it's because of the love of God, the love of the Father, them understanding rightly who they are in light of who God is. That's what saved them. That's what rescued them from imploding from the inside. So the work continues. So, so if you're keeping count, here's yet another opportunity for sin to come in and destroy Israel, but obedience prevailed. So let's keep reading. 
We're going to pick it up in chapter 4, verse 1. Now there were adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that they returned exiles, were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. They approached Zerubbabel with the heads of the father's house and said to them, let us build with you. We worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ashadaran, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now that's a massive clue right here that the king of Assyria, right? Assyria, they're the ones that destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. The kings of Assyria brought them here. So let's keep reading. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers of houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, the king of Cyrus, as the king of Cyrus and the king of Persia has commanded us to do. So here's what we need to understand just right out the gate. Chapter four, from chapter four all the way to the end of Nehemiah, there's nothing but confrontation as a fight's happening from the outside. All the peace, all the security, just the few years that they had it is now gone. There's nothing but battles taking place. So before we get to the rest of chapter four and kind of teach through it, uh, there's something weird that we need to address. So if you have a pen, if you don't think right in your Bible of sin, do something for me really quick. Get your pen and put a bracket from around chapter or verse six, so chapter four, verse six, all the way down to the end of verse 23. So chapter four, verse six, all the way to the end of verse 23. Now here's what we just need to understand because this chapter is arranged thematically, not chronologically. So if we just read this as an entirety, we're going to be really, really confused. Like this, this makes no sense because there's allusions of the kings. They, they reference them. But if we don't know the history, then we're just going to get confused on what's actually happening. So what Ezra is trying to do in this chapter is to show that this is the first shot of conflict, but then the next king is going to have conflict, and the next king is going to have conflict. So as we go through the line, it mentions um, King Assyriasis and King Artaxerxes. And that first king is actually Xerxes, the one that marries Esther, the one that you see in 300. There's going to be a little conflict with them. Uh, and then after that, Ezra 4, 8 through 23, there's going to be a conflict with Artaxerxes. And then the end, we're going to have a return back to, at verse 24, back to Darius the king who comes after Cyrus. So we just need to address this really fast because I'm going to totally skip over here in a second, verse 6 to verse 23, because we're just going to study what's happening in this present time. But I didn't want you to think I'm just being a heretic and just skipping over the parts I don't like. Um, it's because chapter 4 is done thematically, not chronologically. Sound good? Okay. All that being said, you have these guys that are coming up um, that the king of Assyria had sent down. And they're going, and we see this happen in 2 Kings 17. They were sent into the northern kingdom of Israel to, to basically take over all the property. To, to live there, to count it as their own, so that Assyria is bought uh, their uh, boundaries could be widened so that they would own more property. So we see these guys come in and go, hey, help us, let us help you rebuild. Like, we like your God, we worship your God. And we see the response of Zerubbabel going, no way, man, like, get out of here, absolutely not. And here's why, 2 Kings 17 would put it this way. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. So these guys were coming in and going, hey, we believe in your God. 
but not really because we also believe in our carved images. We also believe in all this other gods too. We just, we just think they're all right. And so what's happening here is Rubabel and Jeshua, all these guys are having to protect. They're having to be holy as God is holy, as Leviticus has called them to do. And they're saying, no, no, no. Like, yes, this could be free labor. Yes, there could be help. But if you come in here, you're going to destroy us from the inside. You're going to mess us up. We see this happen in Joshua where they don't kick all the Canaanites out and then it, the nation falls. So they're saying, no, get out of here. Get as far as you can. You're not going to help us. You're not going to do anything with us because you're evil, because you're wicked, because you're going to destroy us from the inside. Now, at first you go like, well, that's kind of mean. Like, like that's kind of legalistic. Like, do you really have to obey God to that level? Do you have to be a jerk when there's, when there's sin and temptation? Like, can't you just kind of like coexist with some of that sin and temptation? Um, here's probably one of my favorite examples. Uh, well, this guy that I look up to in ministry a lot uh, was talking about the fact that he never rides in a vehicle with someone from the opposite sex, right? That's just a boundary that he's put around himself. I just don't do that. And so people have accused him over the years, like, man, that's just legalistic. That's old fashioned. Like, man, just pray while you're in the car. Like, God will protect you. Like, you'll be fine. You can ride with someone from the opposite sex. And his response, and it always just cracks me up, it, it may be legalistic, but I'm still married. Right? Like, it may be legalistic, but if I don't put myself in a place where I could have an affair, I won't have an affair. And so what Zerubbabel and Jeshua are going is, hey, this might be legalistic. We, we might be uh, overreacting a little bit, but if we don't give the enemy a stronghold in Jerusalem, they're not going to destroy us. And so for us, we just need to be really clear. We need to learn some lessons from these guys that, that you can't play with sin, that you can't entertain sin, that you, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Like, it's just free labor, right? Like, they're just trying to help out. Yeah, they don't necessarily believe all that we believe, but like, like they seem like good guys. So like, let's just let them in. But you crack the door open a little bit for sin and it's gonna destroy you. We see that all through Israel's history and praise God that Zerubbabel goes, no, because this sin is going to destroy us if we let you in, if we even attempt this. So it, it doesn't work. I mean, if you're keeping track, Israel is staying obedient. They're doing all that God has asked them to do. But let's keep reading verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Then the work on the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So we see this ladder growing and growing. Go Israel, go Israel. You're killing it. You're doing awesome. You're staying obedient. Praise God. And then it crashes. And they stop the building of the temple for 16 years. They succumb to the pressure of those around them. The sin has entered in their heart and it rooted, was rooted in fear. And it stopped. All the obedience, all the growing, the momentum that was happening with the nation of Israel has now ceased for 16 years. They are blatantly being disobedient in the face of God, saying, you asked us, you commanded us to do this, and we are not. So we have to wrestle with this church because maybe you're like me and I'm a lot like Israel 
that there's just been moments in my life where God is just doing really good things and I'm growing and I'm learning and things are great. I'm going, man, this is awesome. I love all of this. God is present in my life. I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm teaching. This is fantastic. And then out of nowhere, it seems like I just fall. Like, like what, what happened? I, I was here, everything was good. I just got blindsided. Now I'm laying on the floor looking at the sky going, how did I get here? Because everything was trending the right way. The trajectory was great. What was going well over here that, that I never saw this attack coming? I never saw this blindside coming. And then we wonder, wonder and we marvel and we mourn. We pray and we consider. And then that cycle continues and we get back up and go, okay, like things are going to be different this time. I'm not going to let this sin get me. I'm not going to let this sin ruin me. I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to fear. I'm not going to doubt. Things are going to be different for me this time. And we start pursuing. We start walking. Boom, we fall right on our back again. What is that transition that takes place? What happens? And I think, church, the obvious answer that we see out of the nation of Israel is going back to chapter 3, verse 11. And, the, and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. The key to their obedience was in their heart of worship. So when true worship was happening, True obedience was happening. When true worship was happening, true obedience was happening for the nation of Israel. And when there wasn't worship, there wasn't obedience. So we just have to wrestle with that just for the next few moments. Lest we end up like Israel where things are going well and then one sin, one attack, one encounter destroys us. Limits all that we're doing. I mean, can you imagine just 16 years? Just, just for the sake of argument's sake, how many people in here are 18? If you're 18, raise your hand. I'm not going to shame you. Like, raise your hand high. Like, th that's your lifetime so far. That's how long Israel had to wait. That's how long they were fearful to rebuild. That's how much it disrupted the plans that God had asked them to do. See, here's, here's what I think we don't understand. That sin always destroys everything around us. That sin is going to slow us down. That sin is going to injure us. Sin is going to wound us. Sin is going to hurt us. That there are real consequences to sin in our lives. So when we fall flat on our back, it's going to take us a while to get back up and get reoriented around things. And we see here that worship is what leads to obedience. So then the question is, what leads to worship? Because here's what I don't mean. I don't mean this. Right? I don't mean coming to sing four songs. I mean, our, our band is fantastic, amen? Right? Like, they're incredible. When I say amen, you can say amen. I don't know, you probably weren't like Southern Baptist or whatever, but, but that's okay. I'm going to throw one of those every now and then just to see how y'all react. Um, that's why I don't do them, honestly, because I say amen, and you just look at me like, say, what? But our band's fantastic. Riley does an incredible job picking the songs, picking the musicians to lead us to the throne of God here. And that is an aspect of worship, but that within itself is not worship. Because we see that, right? We see the sons of Asaph leaving praises to God for his steadfast love endures forever towards the nation of Israel. But right before that, what do we see? We see sacrifices taking place. We see sacrifices that were there admitting that God is, his ways are higher than our ways, that we have sinned against the holy God. And we must pay for that. 
So literally worship in the biblical text, in the Greek, would mean that you're coming down to before a king, you're getting on your hands and your knees, and you're kissing the ring of the king. That is worship. That you're bowing down before the king, and you're kissing his ring. So there's a mindset there that, man, this king could have me killed right now. This king is better than me. He's more righteous than me. He's more sovereign than me. He controls more than me. So there's a mental ass of worship of literally laying down before the king. But there's an actual physical act of worship of getting on your hands and knees. Because you, you try this. You walk up before a king and go, hey, man, I'm not going to bow down, but just know that I'm thinking about it up here. But I'm not actually going to get on my hands and knees. Uh, you're going to get decapitated. I mean, just decapitated right there. Done. But we do this to God like, but I love you in my mind. I'm just not going to, I'm not going to externally do anything. No, that's, that's fear of man, church. That's not fear of God. So we see the nation of Israel live, proclaiming the goodness of God with their lips, but with their lives being obedient, following all the laws that God has commanded them through sacrifices, through serving, but also through words. So words and deeds is the act of worship for the nation of Israel. Praising and obedience is the act of worship before Israel. So, so the question then ends, how did they fall? How did they backslide? If it seems like they were doing everything right, how then did they fall? Because we can do everything right with the wrong heart. If we've grown up in the Bible Belt, we know this to be true. That on an external appearance, we can do everything right. We can follow every rule. We can lift our hands at the right point of the song. We can write the right amount of check. We can get involved in this and that. We can do everything right. But if your heart isn't changed, if your mind isn't there, you're just going through the motions and sin will destroy you. So the question, did Israel learn their lesson coming out of time out? No, because they were still going through the motions. They knew the things they ought to do, but the Lord had not changed their heart. He had not um, given them a new heart, a motivation for their obedience. Their motivation was don't do anything wrong. Their motivation wasn't because I love God for all that he's done for us, for the way that he's provided for us, that he's given us a second chance, because all that God's done, let us then be obedient. It was, no, we got to do these things unless we get in trouble again. I don't want to go to timeout. You want to go to timeout? No, let's do what God said. So there's two texts I want us to see real quick as we start to, to wrap this up. Hebrews 13, 15 through 16, I think it'll be on the screen. Hebrews 13, 15 through 16. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So twice in this text, the word sacrifice is used. So Old Testament, sacrifice was used to pay as atonement for their sin. But now we have Christ. Christ has died for us. He has redeemed us. He has reconciled us. So the sacrifice has been paid. But the author of Hebrews still uses this word sacrifice. Sacrifice of praise to God and sacrifice of doing good for those around us. That is our spiritual act of worship. So even though Christ has paid for us, we still have the sacrifice of singing, the worship of singing, and the worship of doing, so that we worship with our lips, 
but obedience is shown in our lives. Romans 12, 1 through 2 puts it this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, which is your spiritual sacrifice, which is your spiritual bowing down and kissing the ring. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. John Piper puts it this way. Worship depends on a right spiritual or emotional or affectional heart grasp of God's supreme value. So true worship is based on a right understanding of God's nature. It is a right valuing of God's worth. So so here's what we do, church, and here's what Israel did. They were obedient to what God asked them to do. And they hoped that obedience would then lead to worship. And they hoped that worship would lead to a right understanding of God. That if we just do what he asks us to do so he doesn't get us in trouble, maybe that we'll love God. But what Romans is saying, what Hebrews is saying, is what, what Piper is saying, is that a true right understanding of who God is has no other option but to lead us to worship. And if we truly know who God is, and that causes us to worship, the right only natural step would be obedience. So church, if you're being disobedient, look at how you're worshiping. And when you look at how, if you're not worshiping, you need to look to see if you understand the grace and mercy of God. Because what we try to do is we try to white knuckle this thing. We try to figure it out. I I can do this. Just tell me what to do and I'll nail it. And I'll be the best Christian in this room. You want me to read my Bible seven times a day? On it. You may join every missional community that we have on it. How many DNAs do you want me to be in, Pastor? I'll do it all. So we can live in this land of obedience for a season. But that's going to fall, and we're going to end right on our back. Because we were never obedient, obedient to God. We were down, bowing down and kissing the ring of man. That we feared approval of men more than the acceptance of God. So if the issue here is not obedience for Israel, it's not worship for Israel, it's a right understanding of who God is. So church, here's my question. Do you have a right understanding of who God is? Do we know? Do we understand Have we studied the pages of scripture and seen it for ourselves? I'm not talking about an experience per se, because experiences could be anything. But do we have a deep conviction of who God is? The might, the strength, the power of our God. I mean, when we think about God, are they passive thoughts? Or those thoughts that lead us on our knees trying to kiss his ring? When we consider the nature and character of God, what comes to our mind? Is there a deep found respect for the God of the universe or is he just a good guy? And here's what I found more often than not. And just please hear me from, from a pastor's heart. This, this breaks my heart. 
that the reason that we don't talk about this or bring this up is because of the fear of the church. What happens if I, if I tell my brothers and sisters I just don't feel that way all the time? I mean, what happens if I'm truly vulnerable within the community God has placed me in and, and they reject me? They don't give me good counsel. And so we keep this facade, we keep this pretending. Guys, I'm not a fool. Some of you are in this room right now so that when your mom texts you at two o'clock, you can tell her you went to church. I'm not naive. I'm not naive enough to think that every single person in this room is an actual believer that loves Jesus. Some of you are doing this out of responsibility. Some of you are doing this because you feel like you have to. God has not transformed your heart. He has not saved you. This is a duty. This is a responsibility. This isn't a delight to gather with the people and read God's word and worship God for who he is. And my plea with you would be, look at Israel, that you can keep this going for a season. You can keep this pretending going for a season, but it's going to end poorly for you. There's going to be a delay in your life where sin finally catches up and it's not going to end well. And no one is asking you to do this. No one is asking you to pretend. God of the universe is not asking you to pretend. The church is not asking you to pretend. I mean, if this is you, I would just encourage you, go read the book of Psalms because David says some really harsh things to God as he's considering, as he's wondering, as he's asking, does he actually believe in God? The true raw emotion of David should be an encouragement for us that we can pray and we can ask God the hard things. So, so what then do we do? What then do we do to lead to worship that will lead to obedience? And I think John the Baptist puts it perfectly in John 1, 29. What do we do? We behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. Think, consider, pray, meditate, read on the Lamb of God that saved us from our sins. It's not because you were obedient. You were not obedient when God died on the cross for your sins. It's not because you worship him rightly, because you were not worshiping rightly when died, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. It's not because you were a good person, because you were a sinner, a wretch, when Jesus died on the cross for your sins. What makes you a Christian, what leads you to the throne of God, is not because you're a good person, or else there'd be no beholding. Behold, Gabe Dodd, who was an incredible man of God. That's what scripture would say. Behold, the elders of the branch that never sin. We probably need to repent of gluttony from breakfast yesterday morning. I didn't eat till six o'clock I was that full. That's not normal. No, behold the Lamb of God that takes away our sins. So what is John telling us? You're, you're a sinner. You need a Savior. And there's nothing you can do to save yourselves. But behold, God has made a way when there was no way. So you don't have to pretend anymore. You don't have to obey just for the sake of obedience. You don't have to keep this front up, keep acting, keep pretending that we see through Israel is going to end poorly for you. Behold the Lamb of God. Let that be our prayer. God, would you be real to me? 
Would your scriptures come alive to me? Would we sit? And yes, let me be clear, there is discipline here. This means that today when some of your friends text you or your family says, hey, let's go do this. Go, no, 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 I need to sit before. I need to behold. I need to think about. I need to consider the character and nature of God. Let me study the word. This means that missional communities coming up this week, there's going to have to be sacrifice. You're going to say, I'm not going to do this so I can be around the people of God so I can learn about the nature and character of God. Yes, church, this requires discipline. But once we understand the true character and nature of God, we can't go back. We cannot go back. So here's our question as we start segueing into a time of communion. Who is God to you? Who is God? Is he this person that you just feel like you have to follow the rules, you have to do everything right so he doesn't get mad? Is he this person, like, I don't really understand why I have to worship him. I mean, he's good, but like, there's, there's other good things around. Or is he truly the Lamb of God who takes away our sin? Is he truly the God that sent his own son to die, to redeem us, to rescue us from our sin when there was no other way? Who is God? And that will lead to worship. And that will lead to obedience, but it does not go the other way. So I'm going to pray for us in a second. We have communion set up over here, and our elders will be over here who are willing to pray with you. But that's the question that I want us to wrestle with and to think and consider this morning. And church, I'm, I'm, I'm pleading with you. Be, be honest in this thought. Be honest in this consideration. God can handle. He knows the truth. We just need to admit it. But is God your Savior? Is he the one that you bow down and you worship? Is he the one that you obey because he is worthy That's something to consider. So I'll pray, and and as believers, we can partake in communion. We can consider and we can think about this, and then we can respond in the singing to God in worship. So let us pray. Father, we are so grateful for you. And we sit here this morning considering some weighty, heavy stuff. Father, in every relationship we have and and all the framework that we have, people and things and organizations just value obedience. Just do what I say. No one cares about our heart like you do. So Father, we we even wrestle with this in in some way that, that you care more about the heart of worship than the obedience of worship. That you don't want sacrifices made in vain. You want our hearts to be in love with you, to know you, to worship you for who you are. That you don't want us to go through the motions. Father, you desire a true relationship. And so God, as as an ultimate, mighty, sovereign God, would you speak to our hearts this morning? Would you convict us if that's true or not for us? That if we've just been going through the motions, would you woo us back to yourself? If we just read our Bible and go to church every now and then just to keep our parents happy or keep our loved ones happy, would you open up yourself to us? 
we know you and understand you in the depths of your love and grace and mercy. We get a snapshot, a snippet of, of who you actually are and the power Father, we desperately want to know you. We want to see you work. We want to understand your character and your nature and your grace and your love for us. So God, would you help us answer this question this morning? Who do we think that you are? Who do we think that you are? And if we're pretending in this room, Father, would we stop that this morning? Would we admit to you that we're pretending and we're tired of it? And we're here to have a right relationship with you. And if we're not pretending, but if we've, if we've valued the work over the relationship, would we remember the story of Mary and Martha? Would we sit down and we worship you for who you are? Would we slow ourselves and not be so tedious and working, but value sitting at your feet and learning? Do, do we think, Christians, that God is pleased with us? Are we still trying to earn his favor, still trying to earn his love? Who is it that God is? Because a right understanding leads to a right worship, which leads to a right obedience. And that's what we desperately need. So as we take communion this morning, would we remember that? Would we ask that? Would we question would we consider, would we think? But more than that, would we remember the words of John the Baptist? They behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's only in your name that we pray, King Jesus. Amen. So the band will be playing. The elders will be over here. There's a few tables of communion, but let us just consider, think, and ponder.